At Wildwood Community Church, we are for following Jesus together to the glory of God. We're for the church, for the community, for the nations, and for the next generation. To contact us or for more information, see our website at wildwoodchurch.org. If you were with us last Sunday and the Sunday before, you know that we're in the midst of a series called The Lord of the Church. And this series is walking us through Revelation chapters 1 through 3. And what we've seen in the book of Revelation is that it is a revelation of Jesus Christ. And one of the things that we learn about Christ as we look at the revelation is that he is the Lord of the church. And we've seen that the last couple of Sundays, and we're going to continue that this day as we look at Revelation chapter 2, verses 1 through 7. But before we we look at those verses together, I, I want to just reflect with you for a moment on a phenomena in our world. You see, in our world today, specifically in our Christian world, there is a a real interest in critiquing the church. One of the most listened to podcasts of the last several months detailed in 12 episodes the rise and the fall of a particular church. We we think about a number of other podcasts and blogs and YouTube channels that Hundreds of thousands, if not millions of people are tuning into where clips of messages are put up and then they're evaluated, where churches are critiqued. And the fact that so many people are tuning into these things reminds us that we have an interest and a curiosity in critiquing the church. Now, right or wrong, that's something that that we have. And so wouldn't it be wonderful if we could find out what Jesus would say if he were to evaluate his church? Wouldn't it be amazing if we had some kind of a record where Jesus went on record with certain evaluations of his churches, things that he wanted to commend them for, things, is, things that he wanted to challenge them about? I mean, if we tune into podcasts and blogs and, and watch YouTube channels, certainly we would want to know what Jesus had to say about the matter, right? Well, thankfully, friends, Jesus has given us just such a record. As a matter of fact, when we look at Revelation chapters 2 and 3, we see Jesus dictating letters. He, he hands a pen to the apostle John and he says, I want you to write down what I'm getting ready to tell you and then I want you to deliver those messages to seven particular churches. And then he concluded each of those letters by saying that these letters are not just for these seven, but they're for anyone who has ears to hear. And so they've been preserved even for us today. Now, these seven letters are letters that were delivered to seven particular churches. John was here on Patmos, an island, prison island just off the coast of what is modern-day Turkey. And the churches that the seven letters went to, Ephesus, Smyrna, Sardis, Thyatira, Pergamum, Philadelphia, and Laodicea, were all churches inside of that area of Asia Minor. So these are, are real churches that Jesus delivers real evaluations to. And he wants you and I to read them with ears to hear so that we might know how he might evaluate our churches as well. So with that introduction, we need to look and see what Jesus says about his churches. And specifically, I want us to look today at the very first church that gets a letter, and that is the church of Ephesus. And so we're going to be in Revelation chapter 2, verses 1 through 7 this morning. I want to read this letter for us, and then after reading it, we'll back up and we'll make several observations that will connect what was happening in that church to what might be happening in our own hearts and lives. Revelation chapter 2, beginning in verse 1, Jesus is dictating a letter 
for John to write to the church in Ephesus, and this is what he says. He says, to the angel of the church in Ephesus, write this. The words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. But I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love that you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place, unless you repent. Yet this you have. You hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Now, friends, in this letter to the church in Ephesus, we're going to see a number of things. The first thing I want us to see is really the postmark. Who's the letter from and who is the letter to? We find that in Revelation chapter 2 in verse 1. It begins and says that this is a letter that is to be delivered to the angel of the church in Ephesus. Now, what's he talking about to the angel of the church? Now, if you were with us last week, you know that we talked a little bit about this. There are two primary views of who this angel was. One view sees this as an angel, a true angelic being who is in heaven, representing particular congregations. Another view would see this word as angel, better translated, messenger, a totally acceptable translation of that word, and would be referring to a human pastor, elder, or leader inside of a particular congregation. Last week I said those were two positions, and we didn't get into which position I held to. And so let me share with you how I understand this term. I understand this term with all respect to those who take it as a heavenly angelic being, as a human leader or representative inside of a church. Now, why would I see it that way? Well, the flow of information that we see inside of these letters to the churches goes from heaven to earth. In other words, Jesus tells John to write this down and then give it to the church. It would seem odd to me for it to come to John and then go back to heaven. It would make much more sense that John writes this down and then hands it to a messenger or a human representative inside of this church for that representative to read it and then share it with the rest of the congregation. That seems to be the intent. And so this letter comes to the representative of the church or the messenger of the church in this place called Ephesus. Now, if, if you are, are here today, wave at me if you have ever heard of the place of Ephesus before. Yeah, lots of hands, right? I made the whole congregation do the wave just so we could wake up. Yeah, when you think about that, we, we, we understand this location because this is a place that is referenced often in our New Testaments. It's a, it's a prominent place. So what do we know about the church at Ephesus? Well, we know several things about it. One of the things we know is that it had a number of famous people who spent some time there. 
Priscilla and Aquila in Acts chapter 18 spent some time there. Paul left them there to help train some new spiritual leaders in that city. And so they had a role in that city. One of their roles was to train up this guy named Apollos. And then Apollos was sent out from the church at Ephesus on a missionary journey. In other words, Apollos was a missionary sent from the church at Ephesus. Not only that, but we see that the Apostle Paul spent two plus years there. Uh, Scripture would say he spent at least two and a half years in the city of Ephesus. In his time there, he, he not only preached in the, in the city and in, in, in the synagogue, but he also established his own little school at this place called the Hall of Tyrannus. And every day he would open the scriptures and he would teach them for any who would want to come. And he explained to them the way of Christ and who Jesus really was. Now, this ministry and this testimony was not insignificant, but it actually created a massive effect on the city. What kind of effect did it make? Well, it led to a revival in the city of Ephesus. Now, when I say revival, what do I mean? I mean, they had a big meeting and there was a big top and a bunch of people came forward and, you know, gave their comment cards. No, it wasn't that kind of a revival. It was a revival that was a transformation of individual lives. As people heard the message of Christ and professed faith in Christ, their lives changed. Their lives had been dominated by some kind of black magic kind of religion. And upon coming to faith in Christ, they took all their spell books and all of their representations of their old religion, and they brought them to the city square and they burned them. Thousands of dollars going up in front of their faces. Why? Because they had no use for it anymore. Their lives have been changed for Christ. There were so many people who were making such radical steps that the economy of Ephesus was impacted. As a matter of fact, in the city of Ephesus, the economy was so impacted that there was a riot that broke out because the people that made the idols in that city, and there were apparently was a, an active and a vibrant idol-making industry in that city. The people that made those idols got upset because so many people were becoming Christians and not buying their idols. So they gather up the leaders of the Christian movement and they tried to do away with them. That's what I mean by there was a revival that broke out in that city. It was a consequential turning to Christ from a number of people in a prominent first century location. Not only that, but we, we also see that Paul stayed connected to this church. Even after he left, he wrote them letters. We, we have the letter to the Ephesians in our New Testament. And inside of that letter, he commends the Ephesians for their love, their love for each other and their love for God. Also, we see that Paul stayed connected with them and that he spent time with their elders. In Acts chapter 20, they had a little elders retreat at this mountain retreat center, and Paul was the guest speaker. I mean, Paul spent time with this church. This is the foundational stages of the church that we see in Revelation 2. Also, tradition would let us know that Timothy and the Apostle John, including the Apostle John who, who wrote this letter, pastored in that location. So this is not an insignificant place. And it's a place with a vibrant history. Now, what happens in Revelation 2? Well, what happens in Revelation 2 is we see Jesus writing a letter about a generation later. Roughly 30 years after Paul wrote his letter to the Ephesians, and about 40 years after the church had been planted, Jesus writes an evaluation. 
You know, in our day and age, it's, it's popular right now to have the how it started, how it's going memes. We have, a, we have an evidence of that right here. How it started, how's it going, Jesus is going to tell us in Revelation chapter 2, verses 1 through 7. Now, in light of all of that, we've seen who it's to, but who is it from? Now, it's from Jesus, right? We know that. But how does Jesus sign it? What's his signature? He doesn't just say, tell them it's from Jesus. What does he say? Tell them it's from the one who holds in his hand, in his sovereign authority, the representatives of his church. And tell them it's from the one who is walking among the lampstands, who is present with his churches. Jesus is not a detached in risen God who has nothing to do with his churches today. He's involved. He has us in his hands. He is walking among us and he cares deeply about the lives that we're living. Jesus didn't just come to establish a religion and then leave it in our hands. He came to work through us to shine his light in this world. And Jesus wants them to know that. So he signs the letter with that designation. So we see the, the postmark here in the first verse. But, but what do we see next? Well, next we see Jesus begins and he lists a number of positives. He, he wants to tell them that there are a number of things that he's noticed that they're doing really well. Now, if we're to summarize the things that Jesus sees the church of Ephesus doing well, what might those things be? Well, they, they might be their programming is doing well. The lives that they were living, their, their morality, it's, it's spot on. They're, they're living a commendable life. And their positions are accurate. In other words, their doctrinal statement is right on the money. Their position papers articulate the truth. Jesus writes to the church in Ephesus and he says, your programming and your positions are something to be commended. Now, where do we see that? We see it in verses 2 and 3 and down in verse 6. We see in verses 2 and 3 his statement that their works are to be commended. What they are doing was something to be honored. Isn't it amazing to think that Jesus is watching our lives? He, he cares how we're living our lives. He cares the moral decisions that we're making. And one day he will provide feedback to us even as he has to the church in Ephesus. Jesus saw the moral activity the way that they were caring for others, the way that they were living out their faith, their, their sexual ethic, he says, is commendable. He says, well done on those things. I've seen your works. And Jesus said, I know the city that you live in is not a city where it's easy to maintain a biblical ethic. See, the city of Ephesus had a big temple there. There was prostitution that was in, rampant in that city that was a part of that pagan worship. There were idols everywhere. See, there were all kinds of things that were happening in that, in that city. And Jesus said, I know that you live in a city where all this crazy stuff is happening, and yet you have, have had patient endurance. You have continued to toil, enduring patiently, bearing up for my name's sake. You have not grown weary day after day, holding your testimony of faith in me. See, he commends their programming and their lifestyle. This is something that Jesus takes notice of. It's something that he cares about. But he doesn't just take notice of their programs. 
he also takes notice of their positions. Look at what it says there in verse 2. He says, and, and, how can, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. What he's saying is, there were people who were trying to promote all different kinds of teaching in the church, but the Ephesian church was listening to people who were promoting different truths, and they were comparing it to the teaching of Christ. And if it differed from what Jesus said, as told them by the original apostles, they rejected that teaching. And they had stayed true to the faith. Not only was this something that they had done in general, but it was something that they had done specifically. He says in verse 6, yet, yet this you have. You hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. What did the Nicolaitans believe? We don't know. But whatever it was, it was bad. Right? They were teaching something wrong, probably promoting some kind of licentious lifestyle saying that how we live our lives doesn't matter. Do what feels good to you. And apparently the church in Ephesus said, we're not going to follow their teaching, but instead we're going to stay true to what Jesus said. And Jesus noticed. Friends, when, when you think about that for our lives today, you realize that Jesus will take notice of your life. He'll take notice of the life of our church and he'll take notice of your individual life. They'll take notice of the way that you live out your personal faith. But we, we, we live that out not just so that we can live within the norms of some kind of Christian community, but we live that out because we know that Jesus sees how we live. And we embrace certain truth. Why? Because it's true. But also because one day Jesus will look to us and will give us an evaluation on how well we have kept to his truth. And so, both with our programming and our positions. And this is important for us because we live inside of a culture where it can be difficult for us to maintain our lifestyle and our doctrine. Amen? It's increasingly difficult for us to maintain that in our schools, in our universities, in our workplaces, in our cities. You know, right now, even as we, we talk, laws have been passed in Canada that make it illegal to teach or to counsel people in light of a biblical sexual ethic. Up to five years in prison. Friends, as we gather here today, we live in a world where we might be intimidated away from maintaining a lifestyle and a doctrine that is pure. But one day we'll stand before Christ and we long to hear him commend us even as he did the Ephesian church. And so we think of this. And, and even as we think about Wildwood, Wildwood as a church is a church that, that attempts to, to do these things, to encourage a lifestyle consistent with the scriptures and to maintain doctrinal purity in our doctrinal statement as well as in our clarification of some current issues. You can find all those positions that we have as a church on our website. It's important to us because we believe it's important to Christ. And this is his church. And so there are some positives. But even with those positives, is there any problems in this church? I mean, think about this. There's a church that Jesus said, what you're doing and what you are believing are to be commended. What else is there? What could potentially be the problem? 
Well, Jesus identifies the problem in verses four and five. Their problem, friends, was a lack of passion. Their problem was a lack of passion. Now, we see that very clearly in verse four. Jesus said, but this I have against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. In the original, this is actually even more emphatic. It's as if Jesus is speaking here almost a little like Yoda. First love abandoned you have. Right? Uh, In the original language, they would move word order around at times for emphasis. And so it is their first love that takes the emphasis here. The problem with the Ephesian church was not what they were doing, and it was not what they were believing. Their programs and their positions were spot on. But their passion for Christ had begun to lag. Their focus had shifted off of him. Friends, it's possible to be in a church that is doing the right stuff and writing the right papers, but still is experiencing some problems. It's possible for us to have duty without devotion. It's possible for us to have religion without relationship. And how significant is this? I mean, yeah, okay, he had to find something. He's Jesus. He had to find something with this church to call out. How serious does he take it? Well, he takes it really seriously. He says, if you don't correct this issue, he says, I will come to you and remove your lampstand. We've seen lampstand here is is not the picture of individual salvation. It's the picture of the testimony of the local church. He's not saying here that we're at risk of losing our salvation. He's saying that individual congregations are at risk of shining as a bright testimony in a dark world. If we fail to ignite again the passion we have for Christ, if we just have a religion and no relationship, if we just have duty and no devotion to Christ, then there will be something dramatically wrong and missing in our congregation. And this is also true, by the way, friends, in our individual lives. Jesus calls them to a first love relationship. Now, when we say first love, what does that actually look like? Well, sometimes it's easier for us to think of another area that we have some experience with to help remind us of what first love looks like. And so I'm not implying here that that Jesus is my girlfriend or anything like that. Um, But what I do want to do is I want to think back to my first love relationship with my wife back when we were dating. Now, we went out to dinner one time. And we came back from that date and we're in college and I I drive in and I put my foot on the brake and she gets out of the car and she is walking towards the entrance to where she lived. Now, when that happened, you know where my focus and attention was? It was on her. I was watching her walk going, there goes one amazing woman. She had my attention. She had my heart. She had my affection and I was watching her walk and my attention was there. Now, while my attention was there, you know what simultaneously happened? I took my foot off of the brake. And while I am looking at her, my car is rolling forward, eventually careening into another parked car inside of the parking lot. Thankfully, that car was not hurt, but my car was. 
And for a number of, of weeks, I could not open the driver's side door to my vehicle, a reminder of where my focus was. Now, here's what you got to know. I don't know that I've ever told my parents that story, and they're watching the stream right now. So, Mom and Dad, I just came clear, okay? But that's what happens when we get focused on something, right? That's what happens when something stirs our affections at a first love. Our attention is there. Our focus is there. Our desire is there. And it causes an impact on everything else in our lives because our focus and attention is on our first love. That's what happens at the beginning of the relationship. And Jesus looks to the church and he says, Church, there was a time where your focus was on me. Your attention was on me. You cared about me. We had a a relationship with me. You gathered with other people and you made much of me. Not of the rules, not of the regulations, not of the position papers, but you made much of me. And Jesus said, we need to get back to that. Yeah, we, we need to have programming. We need to have positions. But Jesus said, I want more than that. I want a passionate, focused relationship with you. Friends, this is what Jesus desires for you and for me today, a passionate relationship with him. Now, all of us will love something. There is something that will gather our attention and our affection. What is it for you? Right now, what has your attention and your affection? Well, it might be money or possessions. But what happens if our affection is on money or possessions? Well, Paul writes Timothy and says in 1 Timothy 6.10, For the love of money is the root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith. If we find our affection and our, our, our love in possessions and things, we will begin to drift away from God. John, the same John that writes the book of Revelation writes in 1 John and says, if anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Some will find their love in position or power in this world, something that this world offers or a worldview. We, we put our focus on this world, then we might drift away from God. Or it might even be something as noble as our families. Jesus himself said in Matthew chapter 10, whoever loves their family more than me is not worthy of me. You see, in the first love, primary focus, attention in our lives, there is only one that we are to turn to, and that one is Jesus Christ. We are to focus on him. We are to cultivate a passionate relationship with him. If not, there is something significantly missing. We might have religion, but we don't have a relationship. We might have duty, but we don't have devotion. Tim Chester makes this comment. He says, we can, bri- we can pride ourselves on not letting our theology be infected by worldly ideas, but all the time our lives can be infected by worldly priorities. We can live for the treasure of earth and seek our security in that. Jesus says, I want you to have me as the focus of your life because he's worth it. He's worthy of it. Oh, that we might return to a first love relationship. Is this convicting to anyone? Well, I'm so thankful that Jesus doesn't just say this, mic drop, walk off. But instead, what does he do? He says this 
and then he provides the way back. After saying this, he says, if you find yourself waning or lagging in your love relationship with Christ, then this is what you need to do. First of all, he says, remember from where you have fallen. Remember from where you've fallen. Think back to those moments. Think back to where you were without Christ. And think of what he's done for you. Think of the salvation that he's brought to you, the forgiveness that he has granted to you. Think of of how you felt in those first moments after you trusted in Christ. The enthusiasm you had as you you read the scripture for the first time, as you gathered among God's people for worship, as you went out to provide testimony and witness of him to others. Friends, when, when we first came to Christ, it changed the way that we interacted with everything around us. Our focus was on him. We were drifting towards him. Jesus said, Remember those moments. Think back. If you have a journal, look back at your journal. If you, if you remember a particular era of your life where you really became on fire for Christ, think back to that era. What did you do? How did you feel? Remember those moments. And then he says, repent. Repent. What does repent mean? Repent means to change your mind. Repent is when we, we look and we say, Lord, I, I used to be on fire for you, but I'm not currently. Lord, forgive me that my heart has grown cold. Forgive me that I have allowed these other things to become my priority instead of you. Lord, forgive me. And then after remembering and repenting, he says, repeat. Do the works that you did at first. Think back to how you responded and and, and as you have repented and, and confessed, now live your life like you used to live it. Passionate in your relationship with him, pursuing the activities that once cultivated that deep love relationship that you had with him. Friends, when we think about our situation, Jesus longs for a real relationship with us. That's a a remarkable thing. Jesus is not just looking for adherence to a religion. He's not just looking at websites for statements. Those are, those are important things, but he's not just looking for those things. What Jesus is looking for is the hearts of his people. How is your heart relationship with Christ? If it needs some adjusting, remember, repent, and repeat. And so we've seen the postmark, we, we've seen the positives, we've seen the problem. But he's going to end with this great promise. And the promise that he ends with is this. It's a promise for paradise with provision. A promise of paradise with provision. Now we see this in verse 7. First of all, he begins verse 7 as as we saw earlier. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So if, if your ears are tuned in, if you're leaning into this message, guess what? This message is not just for the Ephesian church. It's for you and it's for me. Paul prayed for the Ephesian church and he said that the, that the eyes of our heart would be enlightened so that we would see his truth. If, as we lean in, as we hear this truth, if we find ourselves interested, this is a letter for us. And that means that the promise that is found here is also for us. What, who's that promise for? Well, it's a promise for the conquerors. 
a promise for the conquerors. And so the, the question becomes, who are the conquerors? If the, the conquerors get a promise, who are the conquerors? And again, biblical scholars debate this. Is this some subset of the church, or is this all who are believers in Christ? In order to answer that question, I want to allow John, who is the human author of the book of Revelation, to answer it for us. How did John understand this word of conqueror? Well, we look at where he used it in other places. In 1 John chapter 5, verse 5, John uses this word conqueror, here translated overcomes, but it's the same word in the original. Who is it that conquers? Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? Who did John understand the conqueror to be? All who have placed their faith and trust in Christ. And so we see a promise that comes to us. Now, if, if conqueror and overcomer really means believer, why did John not just call us believers? Why did Jesus not just call us believers in Revelation chapter 2? Well, the reason why, friends, is because of the emotional impact of that word, right? Jesus is standing before his church. He's standing before you and me, and he says, you know what? You are a conqueror. You're a conqueror. If you're with me, I won, and we're going to win. That is the arc of the testimony of the entire book of Revelation. Jesus said, if you're with me, you have conquered. And if you have conquered, if you're with me, then there is a promise of provision. And that is that we would be able to eat of the tree of life in the paradise of God. We have a future. And that future is, is in living the life that God created us to live. Where do we first see the tree of life? We see it in the book of Genesis, in the Garden of Eden. And then it's kept away from humanity for an extended period of time. But you know where it is at the end of the story? In Revelation 22, verse 2, we'll see this later this year. But that tree of life is in the new Jerusalem, the place where you and I will eventually reside with God forever if we have trusted in Christ. What is God's desire for us? That we just adopt the religion? No. That we have a relationship with him because he wants to spend an eternity with us. And he will be providing for us there forever. And so we see the postmark, the the positive, the problem. And finally, we see the promise. Now, before we we close and respond in a song, I, I wanted to share with you one more thought. And that thought's related to a picture. Anybody want to guess where this picture was, was taken? It's, it's a modern picture. It's Ephesus. Anybody want to know specifically where in Ephesus this is? This is the church in Ephesus. This picture, friends, should burn an image in our heads. Churches that just do things and believe things but have no relationship with Christ have as much influence as a pile of rocks. But Jesus has intended that we shine like a lamp in the darkness. And what lights the flame of that lamp? But a first love relationship with our Savior. Let's go to him now in prayer. Father God, we are so thankful 
just for the opportunity to open your, your word today. And thank you that you just love your church so much that Jesus would give us these letters of evaluation, this describing what is happening so that we might hear this, these things and might respond while we have time. Lord, may, may we be a people that really does pursue a real relationship with you. Lord, may we follow you in faith and relate to you as the risen Savior. May we remember the work of the cross and may we have it stir our emotion, not just our activity. Lord, you desire that we live a life that is honoring to you. You desire that we have orthodox beliefs, but also, Lord, you desire our hearts. May we never lose sight of that fact. We thank you and we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.